You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. You know, just in a larger sort of more spiritual sense, he really understood and sort of approached running and, and running far and running fast and pushing yourself as a means to sort of understanding what's in your heart. And that's, I think, what made him so successful. And that's what really spoke to me is because that's really what running is to me. It's a means for sort of understanding myself, my approach to the day, my approach to my life, my approach to relationships. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That was Matthew Futterman. This is Marnie Salop. Marnie Salop here. Thanks for tuning in to the new Marnie on the Move podcast series, Long Slow Distance. The series is fueled by several of my favorite brands, Mad Ritual, On, Roca, Noon Hydration, Salt Stick, and Navitas Organics. Long Slow Distance is a seasonal podcast series purely focused on endurance sports featuring athletes, coaches, and industry experts offering a deep dive into training, technique, racing, insight and advice, and of course, the mind-altering concept of Long Slow Distance, also known as LSD. The series is inspired by my training for the 2019 TCS New York City Marathon, born from my decade of training for running and triathlon events, and paralleled with my love-hate relationship of doing long slow distance and my desire to be fast. Also, a parallel for life, right? Having to go slow to go fast is a big lesson, and I had to hit the rewind button on my training a few years ago. You also have to go fast to go fast, and that's another lesson. Either way, I decided to embrace the concept and make it fun. I will be conversing with runners, triathletes, swimmers, nutritionists, doctors, and more. If you listen to Marnie on the Move on the regular, you know I often get into the weeds with Marnie on the Move endurance athlete guests about their training and racing, so I thought I'd do a focus series on one of my favorite topics, long, slow distance. I'm excited to connect you with today's guest, Matthew Futterman. Matthew Futterman is the deputy sports editor of the New York Times, a 24-time marathoner and author of the incredible page-turning book, Running to the Edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. It is the inspiring story of the visionary running coach, Bob Larson, one of America's greatest running coaches, his foray into the nuances of distance running and uncovering the secrets of speed. Meshed with the captivating stories behind Larson's runners, the Hamul Toads, and American Olympians, Meb Kofleski and Dina Castor. Running to the Edge offers a look into the science, techniques, history of running. Matthew Futterman weaves his personal narrative into the book as he shares the story of Bob Larson and his athletes. On today's episode, Matthew and I sync up about running and marathoning, his foray into journalism, and the inspiration behind his book. We talk about some of the lessons and insight he gained while writing the book, from altitude training to speed and distance tips, the 60s and 70s fringe running culture, which was the original running boom, and the 1976 National Cross Country Championships, the event that changed American distance running forever. If you're like me, looking to be faster, better, go longer, faster, you will love this book and conversation. But first, a word about 
some of our fueling partners. As I mentioned, Long Slow Distance is fueled by a few of my favorite brands, the ones that I use every day for training, racing, and life. I wanted to quickly share why these brands fuel me for success and some of the great deals they're offering to Marnie on the Move Long Slow Distance listeners. Here we go. Mad Ritual has changed my recovery game in a big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high-quality CBD-infused products. Their CBD bomb is off the charts amazing, and I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100-plus five-star reviews. The bombs have five simple organic ingredients, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD, and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD-infused total recovery supplement. Not just for athletes, the products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So if you're sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. Founded by women, athletes, and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Speaking of active... On running shoes offer runners the perfect mix of design and function. Running in on shoes is a game-changing experience thanks to their proprietary cloud tech technology. You really do feel like you're running on clouds, whatever your shoe preference is. I have several pairs as I am logging lots of miles for the TCS New York City Marathon and switch out my sneakers often depending on the distance and the terrain. Side note. I do have a few pairs that I use for fashion and every day. If you want to learn more about On, you can go to their website, onrunning.com, or you can download the episode of Marnie on the Move with co-founder David Alleman. Now, if you're a triathlete, you probably have heard of Roka. I've been wearing Roka wetsuits for triathlon for the past five years, and they've been terrific for my swimming, speed, and comfortability. When I learned they were expanding beyond wetsuits and goggles and introducing eyewear, I immediately got a pair of the sunglasses, which I have been wearing for the past several months. No matter how hard I try, I can't shake them off my head, which is great since I'm always on the move. All Roka products are high-tech, performance-focused, with functional design. Behind the brand are founders and athletes designing products for athletes like themselves. Learn more on the podcast Marnie on the Move with Roka co-founder Kurt Spencer or shop their website roka.com and get 20% off with our code Marnie, M-A-R-N-I. Now, if you're an endurance athlete, you know how important it is to replace electrolytes and salt as you sweat for hours on end. Salt stick caps have been my go-to for training and racing for years. They reduce heat stress, muscle cramping, and maintain electrolyte levels. Salt Stick also offers the only electrolyte capsules, liquid add-ins, and chewable tablets that were formulated to closely resemble the electrolyte profile lost during activity, which is sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. Use the code MARNIE20 for a 20% discount at checkout when you visit shopsaltstick.com. Please note, this is only available to people with a U.S. mailing address and expires on December 31st, 2019. My other go-to fueling and hydration resource is Noon Hydration. I simply add their hydrating electrolyte tablets into my water and I'm good to go. It tastes great 
There are lots of amazing flavors. I'm currently obsessed with their watermelon sport hydration and the blackberry vanilla rest. Noon began as the first company to separate electrolyte replacement from carbohydrates. The result, a healthy hydrating beverage without all of the extra sugar and additives. Noon hydration is hydrating the planet. One runner, surfer, cyclist, yogi, hula hooper at a time. And the list goes on. They have taken the brand beyond sports and endurance with immunity and vitamin tablets. They use clean ingredients and suppliers backed by third-party certifications and are non-GMO, gluten-free, and vegan. I highly recommend you add their tablets to your water as you race and train, whatever endurance sport you're doing. Lastly, but most importantly, for recovery and for fueling, is Navitas Organics. I am obsessed with their plant-based superfood ingredients and have been adding them to my smoothies for nearly a decade. From their all-in-one organic essential superfood blends with protein, greens, probiotics, and enzymes for post-workout or even just for breakfast. I also use their maca for adaptogens, camo camo for extra vitamin C, and cacao. They also have an incredible line of CBD-infused wellness shots, restore, calm, focus, and bliss, and delicious superfood lattes. Head over to their website and stock up Navitas Organics is offering 25% off for your first purchase with the code MOVE25 upon checkout. Head over to their website, NavitasOrganics.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a chance to sample and try some of these great products. Now, on to the episode. And what's your running life like? My running life is I am training for the New York City Marathon right now. It's my first marathon. Great. Normally, I am a triathlete. Cool. So I'm uh, not. You know, it's interesting because I have learned so much about myself from running and over my life, but like more so from training for the marathon than actually like ever training for triathlon because the running is so much shorter and so much less important and you don't really spend as much time running. I mean, unless you're doing an Ironman, but right. I don't know. What are you? What's your running like now? Am I running like now? Yeah. Well, I'm running Chicago in a couple of weeks. Oh, and, awesome. Um, then New York a few weeks after that. I'll, I'll run Boston in the spring. I don't know. I'm sort of thinking hard about trying to get more into trail running. Um, oh, really? Yeah. And sort of trying to, a friend of mine was just like, made a really strong argument for sort of spending a little more time on trails and away from my Garmin and sort of trying to get out of this sort of marathon sort of PR hamster wheel that I've been on for a little while. Not that I don't enjoy it, but like just expand my horizons, expand my mind, see what I, see what it does to my body, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like it's like a gateway yeah, in a way. Like, right. you know, every, every little step is a gateway towards the next big movement. Right. And who knows where it leads, but, you know, like the Grateful Dead always said, it's about the journey, not the destination. Yeah. That was one of the first uh, songs I learned how to play on the guitar. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, this is my first marathon, so I am really excited. I don't feel like a marathoner, though. Mm. I don't know that it'll stick. I feel like a half marathoner. I do see a lot of, like, there's, like, a whole movement within the culture of running around moving from the pavement to the trails, and I've been hearing that a lot lately. Maybe it's just, like, my sort of universe in New York City, but I have some friends that are like doing ultras. Where did running begin for you? Uh, I'd, I'd say it began pr 
probably the five mile race in 1979, part of the running boom. And my town in Larchmont, New York, had a had a five had its first five mile race. My brothers and I decided to do it. I beat my oldest brother; he's four years older than me. I ran a 40:15. Feel like it was yesterday. And you know, it wasn't like from that day on I was a runner, but I from that day on I I, I always knew that I could run pretty far. Yeah, and I would that never distance never really scared me. I wasn't that fast, but running at a decent pace over a long period of time was like the one thing that came fairly naturally to me. And how old were you back then? Ten. Ten. So you basically started running when you were ten, and now you've done twenty three marathons. Yes, sort of started running when I was ten. I was played a lot of soccer and a lot of tennis growing up. Played tennis in college. And, you know, ran cross country in high school once I got cut from my soccer team, which was heartbreaking, of course. But, you know, one door closes, another one opens. So, you know, that was fun. Like I said, I wasn't very fast, though. But it was always something that I felt very sort of peaceful doing and enjoyed it. And it very quickly, certainly once I got to college, became just like a part of my day that I couldn't really live without. It was just sort of something something I did. And not many college students in 1987 sort of ran on their own right? like that. It wasn't like a... It wasn't a thing. It wasn't that much of a thing. It was kind of weird. It was You'd run into people and they'd be like, I, I saw you running yesterday. Or did I see you running yesterday? I said, well, why, why do you do that? Are you training for something? Are you on some team? And And I wasn't really training for something. I was just sort of, it was just sort of something I had to do. I mean, I was terrified of getting fat from drinking too much beer and eating too much pizza, but it was sort of something else, too. It was just sort of a way to be alone in my head and get out and just breathe. Do you still feel that way? No question. I mean, I can't can't really live without moving in some way during the day. So when did you do your first marathon? 1992. I always knew I was going to do a marathon. One time I was a kid, I was obsessed with Bill Rogers and Alberto Salazar and Frank Shorter and you know Joan Benoit and always watched the New York Marathon. My parents had friends who would run it. I remember being one of their good friends the day she ran her first New York Marathon, uh, coming into the city to like, have dinner with them that night, and she was wearing her medal. And I couldn't have been more than 13, 14 years old, and I wanted one of those medals. It's, I knew I was going to do it at some point. And, I, you know, as I, I graduated from college and lived in Arkansas for a little while and was running a lot down there, and that was sort of the right time. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this now. And so then you, and then you came back to New York. What was the first year of the New York City Marathon? I forget. So I began in 1970. The first year it was in all five boroughs was 1976. It was four loops around Central Park right. for the first five or six years. And then in the bicentennial year, they had this idea. You know, New York was just, it was basically broke. It was crime ridden. And they had this idea. They thought that New York needed needed to get some good PR, uh, your business. <laughs> and so they had this idea to do a, um, a five-borough marathon. And uh, Mayor Abe Beam signed on to it, and uh, about a couple thousand people ran it, and it's been a thing ever since. Oh, my God, that's so funny. I was reading because I'm, you know, I'm training for this marathon, and I'm a little bit of like a 
per- triathlon personality was looking back at the temperatures of all the New York City marathons. And in 1971, the year I was born, it was in September. So that, I guess they moved the date. It was like September 19th or something, which sounds I've weird. only run, I think I, I think at one point I ran one of them and it might have been in late October. Yeah. But I think ever since I've been running them, it's been in early November. Early November. Yeah. When you were also at that age where you were running, were you also simultaneously passionate about writing and wanting to pursue a career in writing? I started to get really interested in writing, yeah, also in college. Probably, I don't know, junior year or so, maybe sophomore year. I started to get really turned on by writers like Raymond Carver and those short story writers that everyone was reading back then. Uh, well, Richard Ford is not so much of a short story writer, but he's sort of contemporary American novelist. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be really cool if at some point I could make someone feel with my writing the way I felt when I was reading their writing. Didn't know if that would ever be possible, but I figured why not? I'll give it a shot. And I started writing a lot of fiction, actually. And was really into creative writing when I was in college and then got a was in an MFA program I got a writing fellowship from the University of Arkansas which is why I, I, I went there and so I was going to be a novelist I was all set and I got to Arkansas and I was 22 years old and I, I wouldn't call it writer's block but I, I realized I just had nothing to write about I hadn't lived and so I'm sitting in this writing program First of all, I'm sick of being in school because I've been in school forever at this point, or feels like forever, and I'm supposed to be sort of writing about the meaning of life, and I don't know shit about the meaning of life. Right. <laughs> I'm 22 years old. <laughs> Were you also listening to The Grateful Dead? Uh, there was a little bit of great, yeah, there was, you know, it was Arkansas, it was 1991, there was no real internet to speak of, I was living in a house with a bunch of guys, with a bunch of people um there's actual grown-ups not just i was gonna say a bunch of guys but that's not what it was it was like a couple who was 10 years older than me and uh there were sort of two houses and we shared a big yard and we spent a lot of time in the backyard drinking iced tea and as the sun would go down the iced tea would turn into harder iced tea and (laughs) smoked a lot of cigarettes believe it or not or at least they did i would have the occasional i was a big big smoker but the occasional one i mean you're in the south sort of can't avoid it and running a lot down there and not doing a ton of writing which is what I was supposed to be doing I loved living down there it was I'd lived most of my life in New York and it was just great people and just great countryside and loved everything about it except the whole being in school thing and so I dropped out after a year um, and I moved back to New York and got a job figured I needed to live a little while before I and have some experiences before I could actually write about anything so what important. Was the f- what was the first thing you wrote about? Do you remember? The first thing like I... The, f- well, the first, like, that, short yeah. story yeah, I ever wrote? or something wrote. that was, like, published, like a, an article or a short story or... Yeah. Oh, I do remember the first... I remember... I don't remember these... I, I remember I sold a story when I was in college to something called the Wittenberg Review, which was a national journal of... I think it was student writing. And, you know, I'd sent in this short story. I don't remember what the short story was about, though. But I guess it was okay. I guess it was pretty good because it was like a national competition and they published my thing. And I remember getting the letter saying that 
I had been published, and there was this beautiful like garden area in the at the college I went to, and it was like nighttime, and I went for a walk in the gardens, and I just like felt really really proud of myself, like really happy. I was like, wow, I got published. How cool is that? You know, it wasn't because anyone. It wasn't because like. I knew anybody or didn't work any kind of connection. I just sort of blindly sent this thing in and they chose me and a bunch of other people. But and so I remember I remember that evening really well. So that was sort of the first that was sort of a, a first it wasn't much of a breakthrough because, right. you know, God knows whatever happened to the Wittenberg Review or whoever read that story or you know, it wasn't like I was discovered or anything. But it was really satisfying and it was a good feeling and I wanted to do it again. That's awesome. I feel like that's like... That's Except like, for I don't remember the story. I like, know, that's I got, not awesome. <laughs> like I have to go home, like I have to go dig out. It must be in like a box somewhere. Do you I still have, to, have the... <laughs> I probably do. Yeah. I have. A, I think I have a collection of all those early things that I published somewhere. Did you type it? Or <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. There was, like word pro- there was word processing back Yeah, there yes. was, right? Like, yes. That was like right around, I feel like you're like a few years older than me. So yeah, probably. Yeah, we were working on computers. But yeah. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I do long, I did, I did, all the fiction I wrote, I wrote longhand first. I don't do that with nonfiction. No. No. There's something about writing and there's something about books, speaking of books. I love your book so much. Thanks a lot. I love your book, Running to the Edge. A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. This book was a game changer for me. I was literally reading it and I had heard you interviewed on Rich Roll. And so I was listening to Rich and I was running and I'm like, oh my God, who is this guy and what is this book? It sounds so amazing. And then I picked up the book. I don't think I've ever known this much about running or was able to process the kind of information from a book, just like reading it. I mean, I think I read the book in like five days. That's I learned great. so much. I really appreciate that. It's incredibly satisfying. You you know, you live with something like this for a couple of years and you hope it connects with people. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You, you'll always have it on your bookshelf to look at. But uh, this one seems to be connecting with a lot of people in very meaningful ways. Sort of every other day I get this... I get sort of random emails from runners, mostly runners. Yeah. Or but some of them not runners, people across the country sharing their personal stories and telling me how much the book meant to them and it's the greatest thing. What inspired you to write it? Well, I'd always wanted to write a book about running because it meant so much to me and it has meant so much to me. And I was looking around for the right story because my running life is interesting to me, but I didn't think it could carry a whole book. And there are a lot of sort of running memoirs out there. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't, and there are a lot of great running memoirs out there. But um, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that that, I didn't think I had a couple hundred pages to talk, to say about my running that would be interesting to really more than me and a couple other people. So I was looking around for the right story and I had known this guy Bob Larson for a while and I because I knew him as Meb Kofleski's coach and then I saw a documentary about him and Meb and it sort of touched on Bob's early days 
with these hippie runners in the 60s and 70s who called themselves the Hummel Toads. And they came out of nowhere to win the 1976 National Cross Country Championships back when that was just the biggest race outside of the Boston Marathon. And they showed a picture of them, and they were these scraggly guys who looked like, you know, they looked a little bit like the Grateful Dead, (laughs) (laughs) or at least some guys who would be at Grateful Dead shows. Right. And I just looked at that picture, and I thought, like, I got to get to know those guys because because I feel like running is a very rebellious activity, even though it's very mainstream these days. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's in some ways an, a real act of rebellion because we don't have to do it anymore. And people think you're kind of nuts when, yeah. in the same way that, you know, back in college, people would be like, wait, I saw you like running yesterday. People today would be, would be like, you know, what'd you do this morning? And, you know, I ran... Oh, I had to have my long run. Oh, how long was that? Would you go five miles? Not twenty. And they sort of like their jaw hits the floor, and they think you're, they think you're out of your mind. And that's a real kick, I think, for me and for a lot of people yeah, who love this funny. sport. It's pretty cool. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I'm like the opposite of a badass, but that like makes you feel a little bit of a bad, like you're a little bit of a badass. So it's yeah. kind of cool. Um, so. I saw that picture of those guys and I thought that they may very well encapsulate that emotion that I think uh, is at the heart of the sport now, has always been at the heart of the sport, especially in America where the roots of long distance running, its origins are really tied up in sort of fringe and counterculture. And I mean, it was... Like 60s, 70s running, I think people don't realize just how sort of fringy it was and that it was just like these random folks, mostly men, mostly young, just going out and like hammering with each other. Yeah, what was the landscape like back then? The landscape, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I, I think you're speaking a little more metaphorically, but yes. I can tell you that that the, the, that the actual landscape where these guys <laughs> were running in San Diego was, you know, they were running on trails and sand and dirt and out to the beach and stuff like that but in terms of the the metaphorical landscape it was like i said it was it was very fringy and it was just something that you just you didn't see people running on the roads and there would be they would gather for a handful of races here and there but not really because you know there was no money in it so once you get out of college, there was nothing. There was nothing organized. There was very little that was organized. You know, there weren't. There wasn't. It wasn't a system where there was. There was marathon, big city marathons every other weekend somewhere. Right. There was just sort of random races that people would hear about and drive to. Uh, right. And that was. And that was about it. And Bob Larson changed that all. Pretty well, much. he was part. Of, he was yeah. part of it. I mean, he was. He was. I mean, he was the first coach who really discovered and emphasized what we all do now, which is these these threshold runs. Um, we just call it like training. But the idea that what you really need to do if you want to run really far, really fast, is you got to practice running really far, really fast. So if there's two schools of running back then, to the extent that there were schools at, at all, the crazy interval school, which is the Eastern Europeans, who are doing you know 65 
quarter miles over and over again with a minute rest in between and none of them longer than like 65, 70 seconds, which I, you know, I would shoot myself if and I had to do a workout like that. And they were training for a marathon, even though they were doing They were nothing. sort of yeah. training for everything that yeah. way. I mean, the, the, the grand figure of that school is Emil Zadipek, who run the who won the ten the five thousand, the ten thousand and the marathon in the nineteen fifty two Olympics. He's the only guy ever to do that. So, you know, sports is a copycat business. So if that's what he did, everyone would think like, Oh, I better do that. So that became like one mode of training. And then there's this guy in New Zealand, Arthur Lydiard, who starts training people to do high volume and run a hundred miles a week, but train don't strain. So don't do it so don't wreck yourself doing it. And Bob Larson comes along and he has two questions, which is why do the intervals have to be so short and why do the long runs have to be so slow? What if you push yourself? What happens to your body when you go really hard for three miles and then five miles and then seven miles? And the reason he thought this was, was really twofold. One was because he had done that kind of training accidentally in college during the summers when he would run on his own and he wasn't doing the intervals with his team, San Diego State, and he would feel, he could feel himself getting stronger. And the second was that he was studying, you know, what today we would think of as kinesiology. And he was working with a researcher named Fred Cash, who was doing the first sort of adult cardiac studies. And they had this revolutionary idea that the heart is a muscle like any other. And that if you train it, it will get stronger and it will become more efficient. And that's really what he sort of pushed on his runners, first starting with these high school runners and then these junior college runners, where he was sort of treating these people as his lab rats and doing all this experimentation as to what was best and, and, and taking checking pulse rates, which nobody was doing back then. Right. Uh, but he was measuring it to see if to try and get some verification for whether what he was doing was actually, you know, based in science. He knew he knew it made it fe- him feel better, but he wanted the answers to why it made him feel better. And, you know, just in a larger sort of more spiritual sense, he really understood and sort of approached running and, and running far and running fast and pushing yourself as a means to sort of understanding what's in your heart. And that's, I think, what made him so successful. And that's what really spoke to me is because that's really what running is to me. It's a means for sort of understanding myself, my approach to the day, my approach to my life, my approach to relationships. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, I feel that that that's a lot of what running means to me and training in general. But I was thinking about it the other day, you know, and I feel like running moves me. Swimming kind of gets me out of my comfort zone and cycling is like where I live. It's kind of like very comfortable for me. Feel in my element, but running as much as I've it's been funny running. Funny you say that about cycling yeah. cuz like everything about cycling is sort of uncomfortable for me and in the sense, I mean I, I ride my bike to work and I ride it for transportation sort of all over the place. But I never I mean, I'm not a cyclist. I don't own a road bike. The whole idea of clicking in, you know, sort of scares me, actually. Yeah, and uh, especially now. I mean, it's so dangerous to ride in the city. Like, you're yeah. better off not getting into that sport. Right, <laughs> and the, I mean, like, but even the clothes look incredibly uncomfortable. Like, the sort of form-fitting tight 
shorts and like I, I, I don't it the whole thing like seems very uncomfortable for me yeah I mean like I don't know you know I guess as a woman I'm used to wearing tight clothes yeah, my whole life right, so I'm sure. you know, it doesn't bother me but um right. and swimming but, you know, you I, I mean outfits. swimming right <laughs> and swimming I do sort of as as and like self-defense yeah as, you know because I can't run every day anymore. Yeah. So I swim on the off days. It's a good balance. It's a great balance, but, you know, an hour and I'm done. You know, I'm not looking I'm I'm not looking at a black line for more than an hour. Yeah. I can yeah. and I guess I should probably do a little more open water swimming and that is something I do want to I do want to do and get more into. Well, I feel like uh, if you get into open water swimming and you start doing the trail running, then you can just move right into swim run. I guess I could. Yeah. I guess I could. I'm not doing hardcore like open water. So I'm not swimming the English Channel. I'm not no. going to, I'm not You're, swimming. I'm not swimming around Manhattan. I'm not going to the Hudson River. Like I'm not never. doing any like, yeah. yeah, my, my, my friend has a house in Turks and Caicos and she says there's this mile swim down there in the summer. I was like, I'll do that. That's great. That was my first open water or like, well, not my first open water swim, but I went to St. Croix and did this race and I swam a mile yeah, in the that sounds, ocean. That sounds really nice. There were like so many people and it was totally contained environment. They like removed right. all the sharks from the ocean for the day and it was no jellyfish. Right. Water's <laughs> turquoise. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. It was like a staged movie set of swimming. For, right. <laughs> yeah. No, but I don't know what it is about cycling. You know, it's like you can eat on your bike, you can relax on your bike. I mean, I guess you can do all those things running, but... I also really love running. So I've been training for the New York City Marathon and I feel like the day I signed up, like I was also going through all these like things with work and life and everything was fine, but it was like, you know, my life was also a marathon. You know, I was like shifting my career and also just, you know, and then I signed up for the marathon and it was like, I started training and I'm like, oh my God, this is my life right now. Like I'm going for this 10 mile run and some days the run's great and some days the run sucks. And you're like, some times you have a great day and sometimes, you know, you don't have a great day and you know, you can do 18 miles one day and all these things come into your head. Like I, I, you know, listen to podcasts and I love to use my time to check out new music or learn something new. And sometimes I like just don't want to hear anyone talking. So here's what you have to remember. Is that like the New York marathon? Yes. It has this crazy high finishing rate, like 99.5% or something like that of the people who start finish. Yeah. So you're going to finish. Yeah. And it's going to be like, it's the greatest day of New York and it's the coolest thing you'll ever do. I think, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that much about your life, so I shouldn't say that. No, it's probably But from my perspective, it's going to be the cool, it's, it's the coolest thing. I mean... My wife's done a lot of different things. She also happened to have run the marathon in 1997, and that's the only time she's ever done it, and she finished in like, I don't know, 520, 540. That's great. Somewhere around yeah. there. And she finished with, she sort of crossed the finish line, and she has her little tinfoil thing, and she's walking with an older guy, and she starts chatting with him. And he's like, yeah, that was great. He said, you know, I ran... I ran the first New York marathon. And so she like starts doing the math and she's like, okay, it's 1997. That was 1970. That was 27 years ago. And she sort of looks over and she's like, how old are you? And he's 82. Wow. And she was like, okay, I feel good. I'm, you know, 29 and I, or 30. And I just finished next to an 82 year old guy. So yeah. It's perspective. Uh, yeah so, uh, but like she says, she will still say like, that's the, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. 
How many times have you done the TCS New York City Marathon? I don't know it off the top of my head, but I can I can rattle off the years. Uh, you know, ninety I think ninety six, ninety seven, and then every year since two thousand eleven, except two thousand twelve, which was the Sandy year. So something around nine. How many is that? Nine, ten, something yeah, like that. I can't count. Somewhere around that way. I yeah. don't know. Michael Caparasso from New York Roadrunners is a streaker. So. Yes, he's done it for are you. On, are you on that path? I am, but sort of unintentionally. I right. do it because I run with Team Hole in the Wall, which funds the Hole in the Wall gang camp, which is Paul Newman's camp for kids with cancer and other very serious diseases. I was I've volu- heard of that organization. Yeah, it's an amazing place. I was a volunteer counselor there in 1994. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the greatest 10 days of my life, just about working with those kids. And so my friend is a good friend, Jimmy Canton, who is, you know, one of the great people who walks the face of the earth, is in charge of that, found- was the camp director for many years. He's now the director of the foundation. And so I just always run with that group and raise money for it. So I, I kind of feel, I don't want to say I feel obligated to it, but it's my team. So right. I don't want to let down my team. So, as long, uh, you know, in, until I can't run anymore, I'll be running New York and raising money for a hole in the wall. Have you written anything about the, the oldest marathon runner ever, like for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? Well, Trail? I didn't write about the oldest one, but I wrote yeah. about some older runners. No, I know you wrote about, yeah. Yeah, uh, including, and that was my vehicle for exploring that age group was, was a woman named Joy Johnson, was this wonderful woman who took up running, I think, when she was you know, about 60 years old, and she became the fastest in her age group by the time she was in her late 70s and 80s, and you know, I went out to San Jose and went running with her early in the morning and, you know, did was doing the stair workout with her that she did. I mean, it was incredible. She had an incredible outlook on life and she actually died shortly after the New York Marathon a few years ago. She fell in mile 16, banged her head, got up, run, ran another 10 miles, finished the race, woke up the next morning, went to the Today Show to say hello to Al Roker, who had become a, a friend, a friend sort of, and then went back to her hotel room and went to sleep and didn't wake up. And wow. I was completely heartbroken when I heard she died, wrote her obituary. It's probably one of the few stories I've ever written for a newspaper where there were, there were tears streaming down my face as I was writing it. And a friend of mine came over to me and he said, you know, he said she had one of the greatest deaths you could possibly have. You know, yeah. she ran a marathon. She went to sleep. Yeah, like what more could you want than? And she was eighty-six years old. What more could you want out of life than that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's the best way to go. Doing something you love. It might be. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. I just you know you wrote about that in the book. I too. did write a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, there was a suddenness to it that was just so jarring. But yeah, my sense is she probably went. She probably died feeling pretty good about herself. Yeah, and then you also wrote a great article about getting faster as you get older, right? In the Times, it was. But I liked. We're trying to get faster as you get older. (laughs) Trying to get. Yes, no, that was the trying to get because I'm. I'm trying. I'm like going back to the book about you know Bob Larson's like way of getting faster is running faster, and now so you wrote this article about trying to get faster as you get older and I was reading in the article that you know normally as you get older you like each decade you lose six percent 
of your speed or is that like a fact? Yeah, somewhere <laughs> along those way. Yeah, somewhere in that Don't, neighborhood. I mean, yeah. it's an issue of muscle mass and yeah, but you're talking about sort of aggregate large statistics. You know, you can be in, you can be the outlier. Yeah, um, that's, I guess I, love I think that's my, I think that's my that's the thrust of it. And part of if we get back to like inspiring me to write this book, part of the idea, one of the the big ideas that really spoke to me on this was sort of the central tenet of, you know, Bob Larson's philosophy. And the idea is, you know, you have to practice and enjoy and get your body and your mind comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that's the thing we stop doing as we get older, which is understandable. Like it can hurt sometimes and you don't want to be in pain. And like the default position of, human existence is comfort, right? Yeah. And we want to, you know, we want to feel good. And I think I have definitely gotten faster as I've gotten older. Uh, and I'm like, well, hopefully it keeps going, but like my yeah. best marathon was two years ago. Um, and I think I can go faster. I'm certainly training now better than I have ever before. And it's because I'm pushing myself harder than I and, and hopefully smarter than I ever had before. I'm trying to embrace that idea of, you know, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, as, as Bruce Springsteen says, you know, invite the pain. You know, there's, although I'm not, I don't really like pain. It's a, I don't think pain's a great word, but, you know. Uh, in the world of athletic language, pain yeah, is a positive word. I guess. But in the world of regular people and maybe, you know, somebody who's not an athlete or, you know, involved in the culture of the passion behind sports and running they don't understand that pain is actually a good thing <laughs> yeah i guess it, it, like there's right. different kinds of pain there's definitely different kinds of pain and so I, I guess it's the kind of the kind of pain that's like that's sort of testing you in a good way right and like it could even yeah. be mental yes exactly it's sort of the, the kind that is sort of associated with risk and fear and things along those lines i mean there's three basic ideas that bob has you know one is get comfortable with being uncomfortable the other is train with a group if you can. The group is more powerful than the individual and that we draw on each other and we get stronger from the support. That old cliche of, you know, the power of the wolf is in the pack and the power of the pack is in the wolf. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking about that and now I'm like running next to people on the West Side Highway. Yeah. They're probably like, why are you running near me? And I'm trying to stay close to their shoulder. And I'm also thinking about like the marathon and like what my, I mean, I'm, right. I'm going to run the marathon so, in like five So hours. honestly, yeah. like yeah. they're, if if you ever just say to somebody, you mind if I pace off you a little bit? Like that would be the cool. That's the coolest thing. Like yeah. sure, you know we're all. That's all. Like, we're all looking for a buddy. Yeah. And that's a great thing about running is like, you know, you don't need a twelve person running group that meets at a running. St- if you and one person go for a run, you have a running group right there. Right. So and you know I think ninety nine percent of the runners you meet like we're all pretty open and we're just happy to meet somebody else and you know we have it's like a little cult actually a pretty big cult so there's that and then the third tenet of larson just to sort of finish up where he comes from is just the idea that like who you are and where you are now and how you're born and how much money you have and what sponsor you have like none of that is your destiny your destiny is what you make of it by putting in the work and doing the hard stuff and inviting the pain and testing yourself and making yourself uncomfortable. And that was really important in the early 2000s when he had to convince the country, basically, the entire conventional wisdom of the, of the U.S. running world 
that these East Africans who were winning everything were no different than we are. They didn't evolve differently on the Serengeti. Their muscle fibers weren't different. Their Achilles tendons weren't longer. They weren't a different species. That we were just as good as them, but they were working harder than we were. And they were training in groups, and they were doing it at elevation, and they were pushing each other, and they were essentially doing everything he did with his Hummel toads in the 70s that Americans were no longer doing. And he sort of formed this group with Meb Gafleski and Dean Castor, and they went up to the mountains, and uh, they had some good results. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the secret to speed. I think that's the secret to speed. I mean, I'm not a coach, but the altitude training is really an amazing if you have the opportunity and you're a professional athlete like that is definitely something that you see all the pros training at altitude you're the only one who look. really doesn't do it is Desi Linden she doesn't and she just doesn't like it it beats her up she feels like it beats her up too much and doesn't respond she just she doesn't respond to it that well you know everyone else it seems like they do some sort of altitude camp and I mean, I like running at altitude just because the air there is really crisp and right. nice. And often, yes. and often when you're very high, you're in a very beautiful place. Right, like Telluride like, or... <laughs> yeah, Telluride or, or Utah. or Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the air is just beautiful. So there's that. But, you know, another thing Bob once said to me, which is that um, humidity was the poor man's elevation. So when you're struggling through a New York some, or a New York or Atlanta or somewhere in any other place in America where it's, you know, muggy and miserable, just sort of tell you, I, I, I tell myself that this is actually altitude training. Oh, that's good. It makes it more fun. <laughs> well, it can make it more fun, but it also, you know, now that the temperature has dropped, I mean, I don't know about you, if you've been training for the marathon and slogging through the summer, you must feel like, I mean, I, it, you must feel like you've got like rocket fuel in your legs the last couple of weeks well, because last the night, weather, the weather is totally changed. I mean, we're it, it, this is early fall and it's crisp in the morning and it's just absolute heaven. And especially if you so if you've been doing some long runs yeah. in August and uh, you know through, through July and August, and then you come to now, it's just it's 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 really great the way the the climate and the calendar work together. Yeah, I feel like 30 seconds faster on every mile. It's amazing, <laughs> I don't right? know if that's possible, but yeah. I went for a run last night, and it was just a tempo run. So it was short and just like fast miles, right? It was fast. I was like, wow, where did this speed come from? But right. I think it's because it was also like 65 or 70 degrees. I don't know, it was like 6 o'clock, and I was running. I was also running to a meeting, with friends so I had didn't want to be late so that was also part of my fast running but I was already like 10 minutes behind so I knew I had to make up the time which I probably did on purpose but that's an interesting philosophy that humidity is the poor man's altitude because it kind of flips the whole pain of humidity on its head and maybe gives it a more fun perspective yeah, I don't know if they call it fun, but it fun. is something. Yeah, I mean, I, I melt. I have to I call it fun the, because yeah. otherwise I right. can't think of anything else. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that the whole altitude training is, is pretty cool if you can do it. Now there are these Alter-G treadmills in the city. Yeah, I don't really believe in that. I've never done it. So, no, Well, the whole thing with altitude training, and I mean, this is this is not me, but this is what people like Bob Larson and Joe Hill and Jim Strait Gunderson and 
the people who are the real experts in this stuff. There's the training at altitude, but really it's the sleeping at altitude, which does a huge, which makes a huge amount of difference as well. To get the real effects of it, you really should have to be at altitude for like 20 hours a day, yeah, at least. Yeah. So if you want to do those, if you want to like, yes, there are tents that you can sleep in say. and there's... <laughs> treadmills that are in these special chambers and stuff like that but unless you're going to be one of those things for 20 hours a day and i really wouldn't recommend that i think that's yeah. probably a terrible way to go through life yeah. there was a movie about that in the <laughs> 70s yeah i think it would don't want to do that no. so uh so just so go for a run in central park and yeah be happy yeah i agree in the book you talk about how rob chapman and ben levine introduced heart rate training i mean bob was doing heart rate training in the early 60s yeah. with Fred Cash. So it did sort of come back to some extent, but it was really, it was a focus. But I mean, his, it was that was the early thing that really sort of set him apart was the idea that he was, he was tracking these pulse rates and heart rates and seeing which runs were having the greater effect. Right. And when you get to the late 90s and early 2000s, when it gets back into this, elevation has really become the new, at that point, Elevation has become the new heart rate. Okay. So that's he's sort of that's where the new science was at that time. Got sort of it. Exploiting it as as much as you could. You know what do you think is happening now with running? I think there's a lot of understanding about sort of that's the importance of strength training. That it's not just about the run. That it's about you know your core being strong and your and that it's that it's really about the push off as much as it is about you can like you can't fly if you can't you can't fly if you don't have a great push yeah uh so i think there's there's some of that but i think there's also a lot we don't know yeah and there's a lot that is discovered in hindsight in the sense that you know we can look at Eli Kipchoge or uh, Shalane Flanagan or whatever, and we can, it, yeah. we can we can explain why they're great and what how their stride is so efficient and all the and all those things. But you and I could imitate those movements or try to, and we still wouldn't go nearly as fast. There's a part of this that is a lot more art than science, yeah. and and surprise. You can look at it in hindsight or through reflection. You can see why it works, but you can't necessarily prescribe it and say, okay, do this and and that will work perfectly for you as well. Because right. it might not. Right. Well, and everyone's so not. different. Everyone's different. Right. And I love it that there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, think it's, I think that's great, the mystery of it. So, so what do you think about now when you're out on your long runs training for the marathon? Like, are you thinking about... Your next book? Or are you thinking about sometimes? You know, it all cha book? it changes. Sometimes I'm thinking about what I forgot to do yesterday. I'm thinking about how to put together my next book. Thinking about the friend I haven't talked to in a long time and I need to call and get back in touch with. And there's all sorts of different things. I mean, um, it's like a journey. It is. It is absolutely each one is a journey. There's no question about that. Sometimes I set my, I say, okay, go for a run and think about this and try and figure this problem out. It usually has to do with the writing thing, mm -hmm. um, but not always. And you know, there's, there's, 
a few days ago, I was on a long run, and I'd been having this like miserable argument experience with a with a contractor who's like you know falling way behind and you know fixing my apartment and having this ongoing and I knew I was gonna have to have like a, a a bad conversation with them and like a fight and I was just so pissed off about it and that upcoming fight was like running through my head for the first like two hours of the run oh my god and it was just the worst run in the world because it was just it was miserable because I was having this fight with somebody so and then finally the last half hour of the run I like got a little tired and I had to focus on the actual run itself yeah so thankfully I stopped thinking about it but um sometimes you sort of get caught in one of those ruts uh and yeah, you can't really. That's the thing you can't control. Sometimes is your thoughts. Yeah, no, it's hard. How many? Uh, so, how many miles are you running a week now? I don't know. You don't know. It all depends. It's. It, it's. Are you, you know, training that way though? Like with volume and also like. No, you I mean I do. The, you know, everybody does three things. Yes. We do long runs. We do tempo runs, and then we do some speed work. Everyone who's. I mean, if you, if you just want to finish and run, then just run. Yeah. But like everyone who's really focused on getting faster. Those are sort of the three things you have to do. Yeah. And it cha- and so it changes a little bit. The, I guess the ultimate mileage changes a little bit. Yeah. But what is really important, and if you talk about sort of, uh, you know, life metaphors and approaches to life, I try to make every mile have a purpose. Yeah. I, try, I, I, I know what the point of this nine-mile run this morning is going to be. I might just, you know, it might be, just shaking out from yesterday's speed from yesterday's mile repeats or something like that. I know when I'm going on, you know, a long run that I want to do two mile warm up and then progressively get faster. So that to me is way way more valuable, and it's one of Bob, one of one of Bob's really good lessons. It's way more valuable than than saying, "Oh, I ran 80 miles last week," yeah, or 60 miles or whatever it is, you know. 45 really thoughtful miles is going to be way more valuable than just stacking up marathon miles. Yeah, unless so, you're like a pro, right? And Or even... No, it's even, even more even important if you're a pro. Not to stack up the miles. No, you can stack up them, but even the pros, when they're stacking up the miles, those mi- those every one of their 135 miles during the week, it there's a reason for it. It yeah. has a purpose. They're not, you know, the there may just be a four mile run in the afternoon. That's at a moderate pace, but that's not just to 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 increase the total. That's to recover from the morning run or to prepare right. for the next morning run. Right, like it's all a part of a piece. It's not necessarily, um, it's not just, and that's why. In between marathons, it's really important to not be training for a marathon. Right. Still run. I still always run, but I just forget about. You know, I love those couple of months where you're not training for anything, and you can just do the miles don't the miles yeah. don't have to have purposes yeah, other than just liberation. You're doing Chicago. You're doing New York City, and then you're what's the next one after that? Boston. Boston. Yeah. So that's three marathons in one year. That's not even one year. Well, it's in that two time, years. I kind of think of the calendar <laughs> year. So yes, okay, I'll do three. Ma- I'll I'll finish 2019. Hopefully, if all goes well, with three marathons. Next year, I'm signed up for Boston. I'll probably run New York in the fall with Hole in the Wall. But I don't know if I'll be focused on PRs or anything like that. So 
try not to plan too much ahead. And what? I mean, so which do you have like a favorite race? I always, that you've oh, done? it's like asking me which which of my children do I love more? Okay, fine. Yeah, that's a hard <laughs> hard question. I do love New York because it's just the most magical day in the city. Yeah, and it's my home. You know, and how many I mean? times have you done Boston? Uh, I think five. Okay. And it's that's that's a fucking hard race. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hard. It's just the weather's so unpredictable. The hills are so hard in the in the second half, and it gets me every time. So, what's your time that you're hoping to get for New York City? For New York, mm-hmm. I'm hoping I don't care about my time in New York okay. because I'm hoping Chicago goes real well. What's your time? Chicago's really flat, and you know, look, my PR is three fifteen fifty eight. And yeah. that was just a couple of years ago, and I've had a great training block. And so if the weather's cool and there's not much wind and I got a good night's sleep the night before, like, you know, my A goal will be to go faster than I've ever gone before. Um, you know, my B goal is to see if I can get a Boston qualifying time. And the C goal is just getting myself across the finish line. And... I'd say the most important goal, though, the most important thing that anyone can do is just be as thankful that you're on the starting line as you are when you get to the finish line because there's a lot of people that, because of physical ailments or disabilities or one thing or another, you know, they can't do this thing. And just the fact that you did all the training, the the, the actual race itself should really be like a celebration of everything you've done to get there. That's awesome. This has been so amazing. Thanks for having me up here at the New York Times and uh, for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's, a, it's a, one of the great things about this book is just being able to sort of talk to people all over, all over the country about running in life and sort of commune with, the, with this community and um, this tribe. And uh, so it's a real pleasure. Awesome. And people can find you on your book on your website. I can just read all that yeah, myself. Yeah, you like, can find it on the website, wherever wherever books are sold. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, BNN. Are you um, on Instagram? I'm on Instagram. MattFutt1, okay. I think, is, is, is what my and you handle have... is. And Twitter is at Matt Futterman and Facebook. I'm not hard to find. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.